Welcome to The Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. In today's episode, you can expect to learn about the transformative power of continuous learning and adaptability in sales, underscored by my guest's journey from selling encyclopedias to becoming a training legend. So grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, John Rosso. John, you're very welcome to the show. John, I'd like to start by asking you just to, to share with us a little bit about your background before you got into your old, your existing sales business. Sure. Where were you working? What were you doing? So I'm like most, Paul, where we got into sales by accident. So I grew up in the Bronx, New York, part of New York City. Back when New York City wasn't so quite cosmopolitan, it was a little bit more gritty and rougher. And I went away to college, a university, and I got a, a degree in English, studying English literature, which didn't qualify me for much. And so when I graduated, I was essentially unemployable, but I loved learning. And so I got a job selling encyclopedias. And some of the younger folks don't even know what that is. They know what Wikipedia is, but this was a whole set of books that sold for $1,100, the Encyclopedia Americana. And I did that for two years. And that was in-home selling in the five different boroughs of New York City. And it was a baptism by fire. And my dad knew someone who worked at IBM. And IBM back then, this is in 1984 now, 85, IBM was like Google and Apple combined. IBM was it. And he got me an interview at IBM and I was excited. And they gave me a job offer. And I said, great. And they said, would you want to work in the mailroom? Would you want to be a security guard? And they said, I'm here for the sales job. And they said, we don't hire people quite like you. Do you want to be a security guard? Or do you want to work in the mailroom? We'll get you into sales if you behave yourself. And I said, what's the difference? They said, as a security guard, you work shift, second shift and third shift. And we give you a premium, shift premium. You'll work every holiday and you'll get double time on a holiday. We give you two polyester suits for you to wear. I said, I'll take security. And I worked for two years at IBM's marketing headquarters at in Westchester, Avenue in White Plains, New York, as a security guard, and then and then got promoted or transferred to uh, uh, to become an IBM official marketing representative, and spent uh, ten years in sales and sales leadership and sales training and any number of jobs uh, until I started uh, my Sandler business in 1994. So wild, but never expected to be in sales. So you started out as a busy a bouncer, <laughs> yeah. corporate bouncer. <laughs> All five weeks out of me. Yeah. How did you make that transition though? How did you get noticed? How did you convince people? How did the security guard convince people to at IBM to let you into marketing? I was clear early on. So one of the things, Paul, we talk about the upfront contracts and setting expectations. I was clear early on that I would take this as a stepping stone and the people hired me were were open to that. I also acted as if, meaning I did a lot of studying on all of our products and any kind of sales skills I could possibly, I acted as if I had that job and began studying the industry, began studying 
our technology, software, and hardware, begin studying things like sales so that I would be prepared. And it, and it was noticed pretty quickly. And I used, IBM stayed true to its word and promoted me when they said they would promote me because I think they saw someone who was a continuous learner, who was eager, who was ambitious, who was motivated, who was driven, who wanted to succeed. And my first year, Paul, there's a, there's, the IBM magazine is called Think Magazine. It, at the time, it went out to 400,000 employees. It was an institution. And my first year in sales, I made what's called the golden circle, which is like a top one or 2% of salespeople. And they have a centerfold spread saying how a security guard went, for, how I went from being a security guard to the golden circle in one year, which was cool. So that is really cool. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then tell me about the transition from marketing to sales. What did you find? I don't know. Why, first of all, you were successful, obviously, at marketing. Why sales? What was it that attracted you? Well, in fact, I was always in sales. I was never in marketing. IBM called their salespeople marketing representatives. But I was an absolute salesperson from minute one, a trainee. And God bless IBM because IBM back then spent $250,000 per new salesperson to train them. They would send you to school for a year. You'd go down to Dallas, Texas, or Atlanta, Georgia, and then back at your branch office five, six, seven times, no quota at all. They simply trained you for one full year because back then uh, the average employee lasted 30 years. There was no turnover. IBM until 1987 had never laid off one employee in its entire career. So it was a great investment. And I owe IBM a lot for investing a year's worth of training in me before unleashing me on, on the territory. So I was in sales from day one. That's interesting because that's an incredible amount of training to guess. Uh, you don't see that. Correct me if I'm wrong. I certainly not, not even IBM. Yeah. yeah. And but you said they do it because a they're investing you. It's a lifetime game as far as they were concerned back then. Is that a little bit chicken and egg? They invested in people so they stayed, or is it a case now that people don't invest because people leave, or is it that people leave because? I think it's the latter. I think the world dynamics have changed and the social contract was broken. The social contract was we've never laid anybody off in our 75-year history. And then between 1987 and 1993, they laid off 200,000 people or half of the company. And that social contract is broken. Life moves a little quicker. So I think it's a little bit of a chicken and egg in, in that nowadays IBM doesn't invest that kind of money because the odds of you staying in that same position for 30 years are significantly, is significantly lower. So I've got to take that into account. I think back then, IBM was growing so steadily that you could become a millionaire just by investing in the IBM stock repurchase program. And so that was the key. I know when I left IBM and people would ask my mother, what's your son, John? I left IBM to do this, Sandler training. And people would say, what's your son, John, doing for a living? He was a bright boy. And mom would say, some selling thing now, but he used to work for IBM because that's what my parents' generation, that was the be all end all to be the corporate man, to be the corporate person. But it was a great, it was a great organization. Yeah. I had that too, only it wasn't about IBM. It was my son used to work in the public service. <laughs> and that was the job to have because job security just when I was young just was not a thing. That's right. It was all about security. Um, <laughs> I had a question for you I wanted to ask was about, yes, I know what it was, is how do you then, so you were a centerfold model after one year 
as top rep in IBM or well, well not top rep at IBM, but yeah, so certainly, yeah, you're in the top percentile. Yeah, uh, you would think then that this guy knows everything. Oh. Yeah, I want to know about that. I want to know about that journey in terms of what you learned after that. So now, because it's very easy to go right. I'm the king of everything I survey. I'm in the center of this magazine. All the eyes are on me. Talk to me what came after that. What was that journey like? What did you learn? What were the mistakes? Sure. I laugh because I remember being a sponge. I've always been a learner. And it's probably one of the reasons why I've ended up in, in our business, Paul, where we're teaching and continuously learning. And I remember talking to Dave Liebau, who was one of the most successful IBM reps at the time. And I did a joint sales call with him at First National Bank of Erie, Pennsylvania, on a guy by the name of Larry Klima, who was the the president at the time. And I remember sitting there, and Larry said something as a prospect that I had no idea how to handle. And Dave did the smoothest thing in the world. It was poetically beautiful how he handled it. At the end, I said, Dave, that was incredible. When he said X and you said Y, Dave then said, I never said that. I said, I was sitting right there. When you said, he said, I never said that, not only... Did I not say that? I don't remember. I Not only do, did I not remember saying that, I would never say something like that. I said I was right. And he had non-transferable skills. He was intuitively and good, but he couldn't teach it or train it. And so that's where in my mind, I said, how do I find repeatable skills? How do I begin to think about um, really finding, and I didn't find the sandwich system till years later, but it planted the seed as to how do you really get repeatable success and not merely rely on intuitive. Now, I love intuition, but I wanted a higher rate of more repeatable success. So how did you go about that? Because there will be a lot of 20-somethings watching this or listening to this who are in that same boat, who look to somebody else and go, I want what they have. They can't, you know, they don't have that self-awareness that can, or that communication ability to trade, or maybe just the time and patience. Sure. How do you go about getting that how do you break it down? What was the IBM experience like? Because they have then now and as then great sales training. Yes. Yeah. And I think this is not a phrase I used then, but it really is about being humble, hungry, and smart. And hungry, hungry is the ability to always want to learn and have that ambition to get better. And smart, I think, really deals with the way you interact with people. And humble is the willingness to learn. And so I think as we speak to the 20-somethings, and I've got a, I think I've got four 20-somethings as my kids. As I speak to that world, don't discount. Uh, don't judge the book completely by its cover. Um, go for the lesson. And so I, you and I, Paul, go down to our Sandler workshops multiple times a year, and there could be somebody who is one year in the business. Now, I'm 24 years in the business, and you're a boatload of years in the business, and I could take a tremendous amount out of that one talk about someone one year in the business. Now, does that mean they're more successful than I am? Probably not, maybe. But there's so many places to learn. I always think about coaches as it relates to their team. They don't necessarily have more talent than the people on the floor. If they did, they would be there. But those great coaches in the United States, you'd hear about John Wooden and Vince Lombardi. uh, These are the names you hear about legendary coaches. They weren't better players but they could break down things. They can trans. They can translate a, a lesson. So I'm a big fan of sales cold debriefing, and and going through putting your ego aside, 
and wondering what could I have done better or differently? And then once I figure that out, either by getting help pull from you or someone like you, or just thinking through it, I then ask my question, myself the question, is it too late? Once I begin to think what I could have done differently or better, I ask, is it too late? And you learn about 90% of the cases, it's not too late. And then I've got the ability to readjust my strategy and move forward. So as an example, I'm a big reader. We've talked about being a learner. I think I'm much more open-minded and much more eager to learn than I was at 24. And I've told my kids growing up, listen, if you can get comfortable speaking in public and you can be an avid reader and a learner, you have outpaced 98% of the world simply by being able to speak in public and being an ongoing, avid, continuous learner. I think you're outpacing most of the world. And so my view is my version of hell would be to feel as if I've got no room to improve. It's Paul, you and I do employee assessments, sales assessments on people. And there are some people who take that personal and go, how can I possibly be this successful if I had all these weaknesses? I say, you should thank God these are your weaknesses, because if not, this is as good as you're going to get. This doesn't, any of your weaknesses don't invalidate your past success. And they certainly don't invalidate your eye, what we call it your sort of self-esteem. They're all opportunities for improvement as long as you can learn to be vulnerable on the, tough on the inside, gutsy and gritty and disciplined on the inside, and vulnerable on the outside. I think the opposite is short-sightedness. It's when you've got to act almost like a bully. You're very vulnerable inside. So you put this invulnerable exterior outside and you have the pretender effect, the imposter, imposter effect because someone's going to find you out. I would rather be tough on the inside and vulnerable on the outside. Speaking of vulnerability then, could you share with me your own personal journey where you've had to address those weaknesses in you that you said, these opportunities for growth, as you called sure. and I say, okay, I've identified this and I really need to change. Because that's hard for people to do, both to acknowledge it and then to stick with it. Yeah, so I am one of two children, the younger, born to very loving, still alive parents that are 80 and 87 years old. But I was really raised in a home to, I had need for approval. Our version, what we talk about, Paul, a need for approval is this inner need to be liked, an inner need to be loved that outweighed a lot of other positive selling factors. So I was not great at asking hard questions. I was not great at prospecting. I was not great at closing because to me, those were areas of conflict that I wanted to avoid conflict. And 24 years later, working at it, if I was a scale of zero to 10, if I was a two back then, maybe I'm an eight now, but I'm not, I'm certainly not done. And so when I look at overcoming in my first six months of business, uh, every single day, I threw up every single day for six months because I'm scared to death is scared to death. Now, how do you overcome that? To me, I think it was a commitment level of, I, I can't say I was the greatest goal setter. I can't say I was the most driven, although I am driven. I can't say I was the most driven. I certainly wasn't the most visionary, but I was very committed. I had made a decision that I didn't want to go back to corporate America. I had moved my family. I had two kids at the time. I've got four now. They were three and one. My wife wasn't working. She was taking care of the kids. And I didn't want to fail. And so I made the commitment that, and this is a sale of rule that they told me, I believed in, 
is I couldn't let the way I feel control the way I act. Instead, I had to let the way I act control the way I feel. And that one mental decision, that one mental buy-in that said, I'm going to live and die by that mindset. And I'm going to continually to work out of my comfort zone by observing, are my beliefs leading me to the right place? If they're not, I'm going to leave my beliefs behind and act as if or take the prescriptive action others share with me to do it regardless as to how I feel. That was the single biggest point in my life. I love it. When it comes, though, to maybe developing some of the coping mechanisms for need for approval, because I, I don't know how you feel, but I would certainly feel that if that's within you, it never disappears. Yeah. And I think you just learn how to deal with it and figure out whose approval do I need and whose approval do I not need. And I was just wondering, consciously, what were some of the things that you developed to help you cope with that? Yeah, love the question. I've never been asked that. And and so listening to David Sandler on cassette tapes back in 1994, David Sandler many times would paint things in black and white so that you would take a shade of gray, but his black and white would be something like, Paul, at the end of this meeting, you give me you give me a no and I cry in your lobby. You can give me a yes and we can get started, shake hands and do business. Or you can give me a thinking over. Uh, do me a favor. Don't give me a thinking over, but I'll take a no. Right? Now, that's pretty hardcore for me. To me, that's wrought with conflict. And I, 24 years later, I still get chills thinking about that. So what it forced me to do was really leverage some of my strengths. And so an example, if someone said to me today, John, can I think it over? Uh, I, could have, I could say, Paul, you and I had this conversation. If you're not interested, just say no. But let's not do think it over. And again, for some personalities that will fit because you've got to change your style for personality. But my coping mechanism would be able to say, hey, Paul, I appreciate you taking the time with me today. Do you need anything else from me else from me right now? No, I'm good, John. How much time are you thinking? Like two weeks. All right, I'll give you a call maybe mid-October if that works for you. Sure. And then I learned to really, this was Sandler, but I really learned to take my strengths of softening. And I would say, Paul, can I ask you a hard question? And hopefully you don't, take it the wrong way? Sure. And I'm not saying this is you. This is probably more me. I'm probably overthinking it. So if I'm off base, forgive me. Uh, But I know in my experience, when I've sat with someone for a second meeting, we've invested a couple hours together. We talked about what moving forward could look like. We certainly talked about that no was okay. And the meeting ends with, why don't you give me a couple of weeks to think this over? And Paul, I'm probably off base here. So don't misunderstand. But usually what it means is I've missed the mark at some level, Paul. And maybe in your mind, you've already decided not to move forward, but you don't know how to tell me that. And and I guess I'm just wondering if that might be happening here. So I took Sandler's version of hammer yeah. and tried to leverage my strength to be a people person nurturer. And I had to set traps. And the trap for me was, can I ask you a hard question? And hopefully it didn't come out the wrong way. Because once I say that, I've got to ask the question. So for me, my coping mechanism was to think through what are my transitions and how do I soften up some of the, how do I become what in the United States is a football goalpost, which is a spine of steel, but wrapped in four inches of human relation skills full. I don't want to be steel and hurt people. I think people buy from people they like and trust. I don't want to be a pushover and all foam. So how do I go ahead and match that? And for me, Intuitively, even back in my IBM days, I was good at the foam and the people skills. 
which is why people get into sales. Hey, get into sales, Paul. You're good with people. I had to really work on the steel part of it or being appropriately tougher. One of the things Chandler said is, what if you're financially independent? Think like you're financially independent and you don't need the business. And I've changed that in my head. I said, what would I actually say if I was financially independent, didn't need the business, but really wanted it because I believed I could help and I was not an arrogant SOB, then what would I say? And essentially, that's the core, I think, of often what we're teaching. It was, what would you say if you were financially independent, didn't need the business, wanted it because you knew you could help, and you're not an arrogant SOB? What would you say? And so those are the thoughts that go through my mind to try to cope with dealing with difficult and hard questions. I like the steel metaphor as well because steel is quite flexible, and that's where it gets its strength from. It's its flexibility. Yeah, I, I really like that. It's the it's it's taking that literal translation, a personalizing it, but b nurturing it up so that it fits the it fits you, and it also helps. It gives the prospect permission. I almost have this image in my head of Colombo leaving by the door, with accepting the thinking over, and then stopping, and then said stopping, scratching his head, and saying, "Listen, maybe I missed something here." I really like it. I really like it. John, I really want to get on and talk a little bit about your book because, as I said in the introduction, you literally wrote the book on prospecting. Uh, It is just chock full of wisdom. There are 30 chapters in here. Each chapter deals with a different aspect of prospecting. And with your permission, I'd like to just address a few of them that in the time we have uh, and just to maybe get your take on what was your thinking, why you chose that chapter, why you felt it was important to go in here. And the first one that I had was in chapter two, where you said, take responsibility for your beliefs. What, talk to me a little bit about what what role beliefs play in selling. And yeah, yeah, thanks. Boy, I tell you what, when I think about the change and getting out of my comfort zone and any growth I would have had, it had so much to do with beliefs. Some people will defend that belief to their deaths, to their, to their deaths it seems. And so one of the models, Paul, in that chapter is what we call the belief wheel, meaning your beliefs lead to the way you judge the world. And my one-liner there is you don't see the world the way it is. You see the world the way you are. So your beliefs lead to judgments. Judgments lead to your actions. And the actions lead to results. And in, in most cases, those results reinforce your original belief, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Sandler's word is head trash. And head trash is are things, I don't know, I don't always debate whether they're true or not true. Mark Twain had the greatest quote, I thought, that said, it's not what you don't know that hurts you, it's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And so head trash is the things I knew for sure that just ain't. So what I began to do is use that model, and instead of taking a look at my belief, where I want to defend my belief, because a belief, if you look at belief in the dictionary, it says something to be true based upon past experiences. So every time I talk to a plumber, they never buy. I'm making this up, right? Every time I make a sales call on a plumber, they never buy. Well, pretty soon I, my actions are I stop calling on plumbers. Why would I? They never buy. And you have this self-fulfilling prophecy. Instead, what I begin to take a look at and taking responsibility for my beliefs, I said, let's take a look at the results part. Am I getting the results I want? If not, the only thing that changes results is actions. I've got to do some different actions. I found those actions would collide with my belief. 
And then I would say what I said earlier, which is, all right, I'm going to take responsibility for the results, which means I've got to change my actions. My actions are not in concert with my beliefs, but I've made the decision. I'm not going to let the way I feel control the way I act. Here's a, here's an example of a story. First, week in business. David Sandler says, I've got to make 30 cold calls a day, 150 a week. I want to schedule 10 appointments and I do $150 my first week. And I get, I talk to 30 people. This is 94. So 30% of the people were picking up the phone. I talked to 30 people, got 30 no's. And I called David Sandler and I said, David, I'm screwed. I don't know what to do. You told me to get 10 appointments. I had gotten one. I knew I had to make 1500 calls, which is insane, but at least I can do the math. I didn't get any. David said, are you asking for referrals? I said, am I asking for referrals? Of course not. I can barely keep people on the phone. No one's going to give me a referral. And David said, are you telling me that because you've asked and no one ever has? I just, no. (laughs) He said, for the next three weeks, you're going to talk to about 100 people. I I want you to ask for a referral. If you don't get any after 100, never do it again. I'm wrong. You're right. I said, all right, how is it supposed to sound? And he gave me the words I still use today. Once Paul told me no, I would say, Paul, I appreciate your time. Doesn't sound like right now I can help you. Um, Hey, maybe you can help me. If you were me in my business, sales training, coaching, consulting, any recommendations of people in your circle, in your world, who you think might be open-minded to a two-minute conversation, not dissimilar to the one we had. First call I make, woman says, no, I'm not interested. She says, no, I'm not interested. Does anybody actually buy this? I said, Helen, not yet. She said, good luck to you. And I said, hey, one last thing, Helen, I know I can't help you because now I'm at Wimp Junction. I've got to have that conversation. I can't let the way I feel. Helen, doesn't sound like I can help you. Maybe you can help me. And I had that conversation. She gave me three cold, but three referrals. One became my first client. It's a company called Brickmont, and they referred me to a company called Ackman, to a company called Stevenson, to a company called ABB, to a company called Boyden Executive Group, to a company called Thermo Fisher Scientific, to a company called Industrial Scientific. There is multiple millions of dollars that started with that seed, but I didn't even believe. Now you can't convince me otherwise that it doesn't work because the data, my results support my new belief, my more positive belief. So you've got to take responsibility for your beliefs, not by defending them. By taking a look at, are they giving you the results you want? If not, because again, people judge themselves by their intentions and they judge everyone else by their actions. It's time for us to judge ourselves by our actions and the results, not necessarily by our intentions. And so that, I think that's a piece, uh, an important piece, especially as it comes to prospecting, which is often the least desirable. People think it's the least desirable part of selling. Actually, I love that. It dovetails nicely with a question I wanted to ask you because you mentioned about beliefs being about our experiences. What do you think, in terms of the beliefs that we hold, come from not our necessarily our experiences, but from our fear? For example, I am or maybe not fear, but discomfort. I am uncomfortable picking mm-hmm. up the phone and calling strangers. Therefore, in order to give me mentally a way out, I form the belief that cold calling doesn't work. Or you said there, I, you said that back in 94, 30% of the people would pick up. And therefore, now how I might believe I might form or listen to that would help me not do that behavior because I'm uncomfortable with it is to say, nowadays, nobody picks the phone up. And by the way, those numbers are, are somewhere between 7 to 11%. So 7 to 11% do pick up. 
but not it's not 30. But I think you're right. I think uh, one of the things Sailor has taught both of us is that inside of us, we've got these three ego states, right? Part of us want to act like a parent. Part of us want to act like a little scared child or a petulant child. And part of us want to act like a real-life adult that I've heard the other Sailor trainers tell stories about. In a lot of cases, we're sending our little inner six-year-old scared child in to make that call. It's really not fair. Let's send an adult to make that call. So I think we do create, I think we create the belief system to keep us in our comfort zone. And it's a tremendous amount of discipline and work and accountability outside of yourself, because it's easy to justify to yourself ways to move outside of that self because we create that cocoon and we become, in Sam's words, at leasters. I may not be the top in my field, but at least I'm able to make a living or at least I can. And so there's this constant pressure to be an at leaster in every, I believe in everyone. That's a perfect segue because you mentioned discipline. Chapter five, discipline equals success. For those amongst us who struggle with discipline, How do you instill discipline? I spoke to a colleague of ours recently who would be well known for being very disciplined. There's a set of tasks, just let's get on with it. And I asked him and he said, he says, Paul, you got to understand I grew up a farm boy. The cows don't wait for us to have the right feeding to milk them. You just got to get on with this. Yes. But then he's a farm boy for city boys, town boys who who didn't have that, who can say, look, we'll do it tomorrow. It'll be fine. Yeah. How do you yeah. have any tips for people who really want to instill that level of discipline? First of all, I love their foreign boy, foreign boy story. It's a great way to think about accountability. I think there's a couple things. I think we should all assume this is probably a lie, but it's a, it, I think we should all assume we're weak willed that there's only a certain amount of willpower left in us and that we're going to find work hard to find ways to break our own commitments. I think we should think that. And so having said that, how do you feather your nest to increase the odds that you keep commitment? A couple of small tips for me. They don't work all the time. One is, first of all, if you can define it, you can do it. I got to do more prospecting. That doesn't do anything. So one is if you can define it, you can do it. If you can define it, you can also time block it. So I'm a big fan of time blocking on the calendar because I've got something from 1984 in my Outlook task bar that says make cold calls today. And it just keeps rolling. But if it's actually in your calendar, now you're held in quotes accountable to at least look in the face and then find out that you purposely cancel that appointment on yourself. The third behavior, I think, is to have accountability outside of yourself. Someone who cares enough about you to want you to succeed, who's willing to inspect what you said you expect yourself to do. So that's a behavior point from the mindset or the attitude point of view, I think, To me, I worked on the double negative and the double positive. If I'm not disciplined and I don't keep the commitments that I made to myself, it's going to work on my mindset because I'm apparently the kind of guy who can't keep commitments. And then my eyesight, my inside, is going to begin to take a little bit of a beating. It's a double negative. I don't get the results and I feel bad. If I'm willing to do the things I said I would do, regardless of A, circumstances, and regardless of B, how I feel at this moment, I have a double positive. I have the results that can come out of doing the right thing. But more importantly, uh, for the future, 
I see myself as someone who keeps the commitment they make. And if I keep the commitments I make to myself and I'm making a sales call on you, Paul, it's only fair we keep the commitments we make to each other. And so it affects my mindset in a positive way. So there's behavioral tricks, tactics, hacks, I think, as well as a mindset thought behind that. I like that. So what you're saying is how can you expect prospects to keep their commitments with you if you're not willing to keep your own commitments with yourself? That's true. I like that. It's a good way of looking at it. So then talk to me because it was chapter seven, fake rapport. This is what jumped out at me and I wasn't quite sure what you meant by it until I read the chapter. Fake rapport versus real rapport. Yeah, yeah, that chapter has resonated a lot, but fake rapport, making a phone call, overly enthusiastic. Hi, Paul, John Russo. You've got, listen, I'm looking at your website. It's a beautiful website, right? Notice to me, by the way, I'm not saying that can't be real rapport, but in most cases, it's fake rapport, right? Even the hated, how are you today, right? Which we call a hate crime, H-A-Y-T, how are you today, a hate crime is fake rapport. Oh, hey, Paul, John, we're also here at ABC Company. How are you today? It's fake rapport. (laughs) You don't know what to say. It's a filler and it's working against you because it's being sniffed out as fake rapport as opposed to centering yourself, being authentic. So I like, as an example, one of the things we talk about in the book is a pattern interrupt, right? Pattern interrupt is doing anything other than a traditional salesperson, anything. And so I like the more self-effacing pattern interrupts. I like the ones that sound like, hey, Paul, John, Rosso, Paul, I'm looking for help. I don't even know if it's going to make sense for you and I to talk. Let me tell you the reason why I was calling, and then we'll figure out if it makes sense to talk for it. Sound okay? To me, I like that as disarming honesty, as there, there are others in this network, and this is not me, who get away with, because it fits their personality, saying, ring, this is Paul. Hey, Paul, John, Rosso, if I told you I was making a cold call, would you want to hang up? Probably. I'm glad I didn't make you. I'm glad I didn't tell you I was making a cold call. That doesn't fit my style, but they're both legitimate pattern interrupts. So I think finding your style, and one of the things central in Sandler is being comfortable with a no. I think once you can get comfortable with a no, you've changed the entire dynamics of buying and selling because for years, the buyer-seller dance, the buyer-vendor parent-child dynamic says, I can always lord over you the hope that you'll do business with me. So when I say jump, I need you, Paul, to jump. Once you take once you're comfortable with no as an option, you're on equal, you're on an equal at best or at worst case, an equal playing field to be able to have an adult-to-adult conversation because they can't hold anything over your head. You can't lose what you don't have. And I think the mindset behind getting comfortable with no leads directly into authentic rapport or real rapport. I love that, John, because I always looked at that it's okay to say no, particularly in the context of a prospecting call, but at any point. Yeah. As a way of lowering the prospect's defenses. I never looked at it the way you just presented it, which I thought was, was a fantastic insight, which is it changes the dynamic because prospects in their mind, the dynamic is, I'm the prospect, you're the seller, I will tell you how this thing goes. Uh, yes. You'll jump, you'll dance, you'll you'll sing when yes. I say so. And when you position yourself as, look, it's okay, this might not be a good fit, that's fine. It just takes that, it's like taking the stool from out underneath them. It just takes that power away. 
And it's an unearned power because I'm not looking to get power over you. Yeah. I'm you know, have a business conversation. And it really does change that dynamic. Now, when I first was taught this, I was completely against it. My beliefs is to talk about beliefs. My beliefs were, if I said, hey, Paul, at the end of this, if it's not a fit, it's 100% okay to tell me, it's okay. My belief was, after coming from IBM, where part of my training was to get you nodding. I would say, now, Paul, if you could increase your productivity of your mainframe computer, that would be a major benefit. Would you not agree? I was taught to get you nodding. If I can get you nodding and saying yes seven times, I'm on my way to a sale, and all of a sudden I'm taught that I've got to give you permission to say no. I, I literally believed and said to David Sandler, I'm not going to do that because if I do that, people are going to say, clearly you're not interested in my business. If you're not interested in my business, I'm not interested in working with you, and they're going to close my book and tell me the meeting's over. And in 24 years and multiple thousands upfront contracts, that's never happened once. My belief was dead wrong. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, if I could share a story with you. I remember as a kid, probably what got me into the training business subconsciously along the path was maybe I'm, I was, I don't know, maybe 11, 12 years of age. My, my father, who was a woodwork teacher, he went on a, a Dale Carnegie course, which he used to have to drive a long distance to rough winter nights on bad roads once a week for something like 12 weeks. Yes. Uh, and it was fantastic. He got so much from that personal development and but i remember he brought home and it was how to win friends and influence people and i was having some difficulty at that time with some friends i was being bullied a little bit a lot of it my fault i have to say and i read that book and it was transformational the just the headlines how to win friends was exactly what i needed but the interesting thing was i was having some disagreement with my older brother he's four years older than me he wanted me to give him something i had i can't remember but he went in and he was complaining to my father. I, and I overheard this conversation. And my dad was going, get him to say yes. Go out and ask, say something like, isn't it a beautiful day? Yes. Are you having a good time? Yes. And he says, just get him to say yes five or six times and then ask him for what you want. But I overheard this conversation. So my brother came out, it was so funny. And he starts this contrived, isn't it a beautiful day? And he gets to his fourth or fifth question. Then he asks, and I went, no. <laughs> and then he runs back and he says, hey, dad, that shit doesn't work. <laughs> That's a good story. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So we're talking a little bit about fake rapport, real rapport. I guess what you're saying is it's that disarm. It's the honesty. And it's not fake honesty. It's the disarming bit. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I like to phrase disarming honesty because, A, it's honest. So that the word honest is in disarming honesty. So it's honest. But it's also disarming. It's not brutal honesty, right? Brutal honesty would be, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say, Paul. And we're not winning friends and influencing people. So I like the disarming honesty. And when you're comfortable in your own skin, it becomes easier. Yes. That. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about then what you have seen change over the past few years in sales. What are you doing nowadays in terms of your prospect that you weren't doing five years ago that you're going, this is so much better? Sure. And so I don't want to confuse the listeners. Social media has changed things, but social media is not the answer. So I use social media aggressively. I tweet, I have LinkedIn, I've got Facebook, I've got Instagram, I've got all those are wonderful tools. And they, the research I can do now would take is 150th of what it would have took 10 years ago. 
to find research on a particular prospect to make a connection. I'm big on warming up any call by making a personal connection. That personal connection could be a person. It could be research about the person I'm speaking to, or it could be recent and relevant news about the organization they work for. But that really has found a way to drop bar- to drop down barriers. But ultimately, selling is a human-to-human interaction. Otherwise, it's online selling, and I don't need you. In fact, what I need to do is drive down the cost of sales. The way I do that, Paul, is I don't employ you. But it, in our version of selling, it starts with a conversation. Everything, including all the social media and all the Google research, has to be about starting conversations. The world has gotten more cluttered. More and more people are using, in my opinion, fake rapport on emails and and social media. So there's a real chance to A, stick out by being authentic and picking up the phone. Okay, interesting. So that that's not changed at all. Like, no. Yeah. No. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. You dedicate two chapters to dealing with stress, one of them to your stress, one of them to the prospect stress. Talk to me about that. You know, think about the prospect stress for, for a second. Prospects are no different than you and I. When we talk about the prospects and the situation are reversed and we're prospects, we act like the prospect. But think about almost any situation where all decorum is thrown out and you pick up and you pick up the phone and hang up on somebody, or you pick up the phone and said, you got five seconds, you got 10 seconds. It, it's not the way normal people talk. So there's a lot of stress on that prospect. And we've got to find a way using pattern interrupts, mini upfront contracts, disarming honesty, all outlined in that book, and to be other-centered, to be prospect-centered. It's not about the features and benefits, and we've been in business since 1957. No one cares. We've got to use those to bring their defense wall down and lower their stress level up. I think on our stress level, we've talked a little bit about a number of techniques. One is figure out what you can control, your behavior. You can't control a whole lot. Focus on the things you can control. And then get, learn to get comfortable with no. I think well, I could have gotten, I've, I could have had a whole lot of stress if I would have gotten comfortable in the first year that no was okay. It took me 18 months to feel comfortable that no was okay. Because every time I was getting a no, I was feeling as if I was failing. Uh, even though David Sandler had said in many cases that no is one journey on the way to your next yes. And a lot of sales trainers have said that over the years, stress is mostly self-induced by your belief system, right? Expectations of ourselves and others is the root of all unhappiness. <laughs> and so putting that expectation of failing or succeeding based upon the outcome, not the process, put a lot of stress on me. So now I affirm in my journal, I'm tied to the process, not the outcome. Love it. I love it. John, we're running out of time and I want to be true to our, uh, our agreement was the post-sell, chapter 15, yeah. People who might look at that and go, what does post-sell mean? What is it? Yeah. Why is it important? Sure. So post-sell, post-sell is about getting people to keep commitments. So the upfront contract is one of the techniques we teach in sailor to get people to make commitments, not to get them to make commitments, but, but getting them to make a commitment. Post-sell is about getting people to keep the commitment. So this is not post-sale implementation. Post-sell is a selling strategy that really is about a series of verbal rehearsal steps so that you don't back out on any verbal commitment. I'll give you an example. Funny story. I had a client that is the second largest manufacturer of caskets in the United States. Caskets being what we would call coffins. Coffins, yes, coffins. You, You will spend eternity, at least your body, will spend eternity decomposing in your coffin. 
and and they were they were the second biggest. Their competitor was, of course, the biggest. And and they would go in and make these sales calls, and people would say, "Listen, I'm unhappy with Mister B. I'm going to switch with you, but I've got inventory that I've got to sell off over the next month or so. So why don't you follow up with me?" And by the time they followed up, it was bad news. Either the person from Mr. Big said, I didn't realize you were unhappy. Give me a second chance. If that didn't work, they would say, let me see if I can do anything on the price. Would that help? If that didn't work, in rare situations, they would they would offer their headquarters corporate jet to fly them down to a retreat in Georgia, USA, the state of Georgia, USA, off the coast, to do a full port press to get the funeral homeowner and his wife, if you will, to stick with them. And when we learn this, we begin to put in techniques called a post-sale. So when Paul, the funeral homeowner, said, as soon as I run out of inventory with Mr. Big, I'm going to go to your organization. We taught him to say, Paul, I appreciate it. It means a lot. And that's the exact right decision. Let me ask you this, though. We know over the next couple of weeks, you're going to get a call from the Mr. Big salesperson asking you to reorder. What are you going to say? Because if the answer is, I'm going to go with that, I'm, you know, I'm going to give him a second chance. Maybe we want to revalue. No, I won't do that. They're probably going to offer you a price discount because they have nothing to lose because they see themselves losing their business. Now, we know it's low margin. They're not going to be able to maintain it. But are you going to be strong enough? Because I've got to go back to my office and I've got to begin to put the marketing materials in place for you. And I want to make sure we're good. They said, no, we're good, John. I have seen situations, Paul, where they're going to offer you to fly the, they're going to fly the corporate jet in to take you and your wife to the corporate retreat off the coast of Georgia. You're going to be able to stand that pressure, or do we have an agreement? Right? We go, Paul, you've got my word, you got an agreement. I give her about a week to call back, and I, and the, I taught him to say this. Paul, have you heard from Mr. Big? He, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When they offered you the corporate jet to fly you and your wife down to the coast of Georgia, what'd you say? Number one answer, they never offered me the corporate jet. <laughs> and we taught him to say, Really? Huh. Wow. Oh, <laughs> that's so bad. I love it. I love it. I love it. So that's post-sale really is a series of verbal reverses to make sure that people know what they're committing to, are committing to a similar version of the truth, and they won't back it. I like that as well, because people could adapt that story to their own world. It does not have to be a corporate jet. It could be Wimbledon tickets or Leave Cup final, those big events where... I would imagine as well, particularly if the prospect you were trying to reel in was, let's say, a soccer fan, champions yes. final would be a big deal. Yes. And, and what, what really shook me is in my early days, a lot of the sales training I took said, once you get the sale, shut up. And what we're teaching is once you get the sale, shut up about your products, your features, your benefits. But don't be afraid to rehearse them on something that could cause a back out. Because if you're going to back out, I'd rather have you back out when you're in front of me not in the privacy of your own bedroom, and then it takes me seven weeks to get a hold of you, and I've already lost this deal. Fantastic. I love it. John, the book is Prospect the Sandler Way, a 30-day program for mastering stress-free lead development. I know it's on Amazon. I presume it's on your own store as well, on your own website. John, if people want to get in contact with you, how will they do that? What's your preferred method? Sure. Easiest way to get in contact with me would be through email, which is john.rosso, R-O-S-O, at sandler.com, S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. And our particular website is Peak Performance, uh, the word peak, P-E-A-K, peakperformance.sandler.com. But I really appreciate the, 
all the time. It's always a pleasure. We've spoken a lot over the years. I've learned a lot from you. I appreciate the time. And likewise, John, I'll make sure those are in the details. And I would also say, people, just sign up for John's videos. He sends out monthly video tactics, and they are just fantastic. You can learn so much. John, thank you so much for your time. It's really appreciated. My pleasure. Thank you, Paul.